Welcome to the podcast for Epworth United Methodist Church in Berkeley, California. I'm Pastor Kristen Stone King. Our mission at Epworth is to live out God's love for all. We strengthen our faith as we worship, study, develop a creative, supportive community, and serve others. Together, we encourage each other, challenge each other, and welcome all people on their journey of faith. We are a reconciling congregation, meaning that persons of all sexual orientations and gender identities are welcomed to help transform our church and our world into the full expression of Christ's inclusive love. We are a sanctuary church, advocating for the rights and dignity of immigrants, and we stand in solidarity with the movement for Black Lives. Our podcast blends a taste of the music that we experience here in worship on Sunday mornings, along with a scripture reading and a message. Scripture reading this morning comes from Jeremiah chapter 8, verse uh, 18 through chapter 9, verse 1. My joy is gone. Grief is upon me. My heart is sick. Hark! The cry of my poor people from far and wide in the land. Is the Lord not in Zion? Is her king not in her? Why have they provoked me to anger with their images, with their foreign idols? The harvest is past, the summer is ended, and we are not saved. For the hurt of my poor people, I am hurt. I mourn, and dismay has taken hold of me. Is there no balm in Gilead? Is there no physician there? Why has the health of my poor people not been restored? Oh, that my head were a spring of water and my eyes a fountain of tears, so that I might weep day and night for the slain of my poor people. The Word of God.
also remind you as I begin the message that we will be praying today with prayer cards. So if you have a prayer that you want lifted up in voice, if you're experiencing the troubled waters, I invite you to write that down, write what you want to lift up on one of our prayer cards and indicate to an usher that you have a prayer you'd like lifted up and that will be raised in voice in the coming week so that we may hold you all in prayer. Let us bow now in prayer. Gracious and loving God, may the words of my mouth be acceptable in your sight. O God, our strength and our redeemer. Amen. Social psychologist and researcher Renee Brown tells a story about a time when she was on vacation with her family. They were staying on Lake Travis in Austin, a lake she grew up swimming in, and she and her husband decided to go for a swim. And as they entered the water, she felt so much joy. She and her husband had first met when they were both swimming coaches, and swimming was a big connecting point in their family. All of their kids were involved in swimming. And as they swam, she expressed her gratitude um, and, and just offered to her husband how excited she was to be with him in the water in this time away. And she got a quick response from him, and he swam on. And at, at first, she thought, he's just, he's just as overwhelmed with joy as I am. He can't even speak. He's so happy. And when they got to the other side of the lake, Brown looked at him and she said, this is so amazing. I'm so glad we've committed to spending this time together. But then when her husband answered similarly to how he had before with barely more than a word, 
she felt blown off. And in her words, she was pissed. So then Brown says she began to spiral into a story about how her husband no longer found her attractive and how she wasn't the person she was when they met and that their marriage was actually in real trouble. And she quickly became lost in that story. It wasn't until much later in the, in the vacation that she learned her husband was actually having a panic attack, trying to fend off images of a nightmare that he had had the night before where their five kids were in the water drowning and he was unable to get to them and save them. He was counting his strokes so that those images, that story, would not overwhelm him. He hadn't even heard her trying to communicate with him as they swam across the lake. And yet, Brown says, if she had not kept trying to understand what was really going on, what was the reality of the situation, she would have stayed in that shame spiral. Last Sunday, we passed another anniversary of 9-11, and I touched on this uh, in my message last week, and I want to return to it for a moment as we begin today. We know that 9-11 was a devastating event, and the consequent reactions and their repercussions have altered the course of the last 21 years in irrevocably damaging ways. In the aftermath of 9-11, we told ourselves a story about needing to be invulnerable, about a whole group of people being dangerous, and began to look for sources that would make us feel safe. In the chaos and as a culture, we spent more time lost in the story than asking ourselves what was untrue about these stories and what was reality. There's something else though, and this is where I wanna enter today, and that is the extreme reaction of fear and perhaps more particularly shame that, to, that was engendered by 9-11 that was really uh, rooted in a deeper story that we've been telling ourselves for a long time. That story is a story of exceptionalism that we're special in some way, appreciated first among all the world's nations, even favored by God. In his book, Reality, Grief, Hope, which will be a companion for us in the next three weeks in this series, which is entitled the same uh, Reality, Grief, and Hope. Next week, we'll focus on grief, and finally, we'll get to hope. Uh, biblical scholar Walter Brueggemann, the writer of Reality, Grief, Hope, writes that the reaction to 9-11 was not unlike the reaction of ancient Israel to the destruction of their temple and the exile to Babylon. Israel believed it was a chosen people, a faithful nation, guided by a code of moral and religious laws. How could something like the destruction of their holy place happen to them? How could it be that they found themselves in a strange land among a strange people? Their fundamental story was challenged and they went spinning into a spiral of shame. Now I know that this congregation largely rejects the idea of American exceptionalism 
at least intellectually. But there is another dimension to exceptionalism that we are vulnerable to. Though the COVID pandemic had not occurred yet when Brueggemann was drawing the connections between the despair and lostness, the shame spiral, that the ideas of specialness, both ancient Israel and this nation hold, this parallel applies to the pandemic as well. In the last two and a half years, stories we have held about our security, about how our lives and the lives of our loved ones were supposed to go, about what is valuable, have all been called into question. And into these contexts enters the voice of the prophet Jeremiah. First in address to ancient Israel, but now down through the ages in address to us. In the scripture we have for today, Jeremiah speaks as both prophet and one amongst the community caught in calamity. The harvest is past, he says. The summer has ended and we are not saved. Since my people are crushed, I am crushed. I mourn and horror grips me. The sense of pain and lostness being expressed is clear. But then Jeremiah goes on to speak those well-known words, is there no balm in Gilead? Is there no physician here? And this is the critical moment in the scripture. This is the moment like the moment in Brene Brown's story when she went from feeling hurt by her husband's reaction, that's reality, to spiraling into a story about her husband's rejection of her, which was not a true story. Similarly, Jeremiah expresses this pivotal moment in the people's response to this time of loss and being forced into exile, that's reality, that happened, into their story of what is happening because God, the great physician, has abandoned them. That is not a true story. And just as Brown's pursuit of the true story, reality with a capital R, led her to the deeper understanding about what was really going on with her husband, Jeremiah pushes into the story of ancient Israel and discovers that Israel's exceptionalism is not just about being a chosen people of God, it also contains an unarticulated belief that God will save them from all of life's hardships. At the root of this kind of exceptionalism, ironically, is the belief that they are, in a sense, greater than God. That they don't need God because God has already ordained that all should be well for them. Jeremiah, as a prophet now, then begins to address this false story. You do need God, he says to Israel. And some of your reaction to the calamity that is happening is because you had come to believe that though you attend to the rituals of God, you are, that you don't need God. You're not living in a way that fundamentally says all of your faith, trust, hope, breath, life is in God. 
you have diverged from an active witness to the fact, the reality, that your very breath comes from God. Return to God, Jeremiah says. Return to the ground of your reality, life itself. Jeremiah's point is that the insidiousness of this exceptionalism is that Israel has become so disconnected from God that the solution is not just exercising a little willpower to feel better. It's not just work a bit harder at feeling better. Jeremiah is a realist. He knows that the problem runs much deeper than that. This is a deadly malady of disconnection and belief in one's own control that needs to be healed. The first three steps of the 12 steps speak to this. Step one, we admitted we were powerless over an addiction. Step two, we came to believe that a power greater than ourselves could restore us to sanity. And step three, we made a decision to turn our will and our lives over to God. In the case of ancient Israel and maybe us, the addiction is the idea that we are in control of our own lives and everything that happens around us. And then something happens. Sometimes it's a small thing. In the last two and a half years, we've had a big thing. And this truly intoxicating story is shown to be not a true story. The voice of Jeremiah comes to us and says, the reality is that you need God. And the other reality is that God is with you. God is already with you. God is trying to reach you. As a community of people seeking to be faithful, we are then called to reflect this reality and to witness to it in the way that we live our lives in a world that is desperately in need of God. Brueggemann says it this way, the task of the prophetic church is to bear witness to the irreducible reality of God and the irreducible reality of neighbor as the reference points for a viable life in the world that even exceptionalism cannot nullify. In a society that has become increasingly therapeutic, the viability of God as an ultimacy beyond our entitlements requires a kind of theological courage that is in short supply among us. But in truth, the prophetic tradition has no ground on which to stand unless it can in some way attend to the holy ultimacy that lies beyond our canniest domestication. Wow. Why do the words of the prophet resonate over 5,000 years later? Why are they still relevant to us today? Because this is the human condition. We all get stuck in false stories sometimes, forgetting that no matter what, 
we always and completely are in need of God. God is always calling us into reality, and as we awaken to and embrace what is, we find the balm that we hungered for in the first place. Not that everything will be made smooth for us, but rather that our relationship with God is an emancipatory one. In faith, in trust, we actually find peace in knowing the real story. We are freed to let go and live fully in the ultimacy of God. Amen. You've been listening to the podcast for Epworth United Methodist Church in Berkeley, California. Wherever you're located, we'd love for you to take a next step in growing in faith in this community. Our online worship is at 10 a.m. on Sunday mornings on Facebook, YouTube, and on our website at epworthberkeley.org. Or you can fill out an online connect card at epworthberkeley.org backslash connect. Have a great week.